Welcome to Amici, news and insight from a New York court. I'm John Carr. Today we have a special guest for our diversity dialogue segment, the Honorable Kathy E. Davidson, Dean of the New York State Judicial Institute. Prior to her election to the Westchester County Family Court in 1997, Judge Davidson practiced family law. She served as an attorney for the Legal Aid Society Juvenile Rights Unit and as Deputy County Attorney for Westchester County. She has held a number of supervisory roles in the judicial system, including supervising judge of the family court for the five counties of the 9th Judicial District and administrative judge for the 9th JD, a position in which she was responsible for more than a 1,000 employees and tasked with managing the day-to-day operations of courts in Dutchess, Orange, Putnam, Rockland, and Westchester counties. She was the first African-American woman appointed as supervising judge in the 9th Judicial District, the first woman to be appointed administrative judge in the 9th Judicial District, and the first African-American to be appointed administrative judge outside of New York City. In 2021, Judge Davidson was named Dean of the Judicial Institute, a judicial education and research institute based in White Plains. Judge, uh, thank you for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. Always a good place to start. Where were you born? I was born in Washington, D.C. And what do your parents do? So my parents both uh, are deceased, but my father was a doctor and a lawyer, and my mother was the ultimate uh, public servant. Uh, she headed one of those. Uh, she was a director of an anti-poverty program in Portchester, New York. She was director of the volunteers of North General Hospital on Madison Avenue in Harlem, New York. She was a head of volunteers, organizations, auxiliaries. So she was a true community leader and and, uh, really believed in wanting to make a difference through service. Now, your father was a doctor and a lawyer? Correct, correct. Yeah, he actually, you know, my, my parents met on Howard University's campus while he was in medical school. So predominantly most of um, my life, he was a a doctor, a medical doctor, surgeon. Uh, Came to Harlem Hospital, obviously, they were under the times when they were segregation. And then later in life, and this is kind of funny, I don't know if it's a good thing, especially saying this, but he had such a bad experiences with lawyers. Uh, He said, you know, and my father was never afraid of school learning. He said, the money I'm paying lawyers, I could just send myself to law school. So I don't know if that's the reason, but he went on to really love the law for different reasons. So that's how it came about. And that was obviously later in life um, while I was in college. Let's back up. So what, what were the negative experiences you had had with lawyers, or your family had with lawyers? I think with him, um, some of the things, you know, <laughs> I don't want to talk about my profession, but maybe Laura filing the case in the wrong court. Um, I think he felt that he didn't, uh, you know, my father wasn't, and I think when you grow up at the time that my parents grew up, you always were in a, uh, a way of fighting. And so I think maybe not aggressive enough. So I don't know if it was negative, but maybe the level of competency that he wanted was not there, mm-hmm. you know? That's fascinating. And your mother had a somewhat different uh, trajectory, a more of a human service community activist Ex- role, right? Exactly, exactly. She really believed in my mother. My father was from... Uh, North Carolina, Charlotte, and my mother's from New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. And so um, she really, having lived both of them under pre-desegregation rules, she really felt that 
helping the community, those who were less fortunate, is really the way to advance all people of color forward. And she was very much committed and dedicated to education and educating young people. While she, and the anti-poverty program was one of those huge programs under um, Lyndon Johnson, as you may remember. And so she worked many years um, ensuring and helping to get young people into um, schools. She had a great relationship with, I think it's Plattsburgh. And interestingly enough, forward thinking, when I first ran for office in 2003 for family court, I would meet people on the street and said, oh, your mother helped me when I was a young person, or helped my, and it was, it was fascinating. I'll do anything for your campaign. So my mother and her uh, political activism and volunteers really proved very well for me. Uh, both of my family parents were very dedicated to the community and their local community. Yep. So it sounds like your parents were an enormous influence not only on your career path, but on your, your whole view of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my father was very um, strict. You know, he felt he was a little more along the lines of um, work hard. And my mother was too, and go to school, and this is the avenue out. And my mother balanced that because she said sometimes everyone doesn't have that, that um, type of um, support or family support. And she would always say, even growing up in Louisiana, though times were difficult, the family unit was so strong and powerful. So they believed that that was how we help our community in whatever way, whatever profession you were in. So there, it was a profound, um, really, when you talk about a role models, they were really the role models. And my aunts and uncles, there, because most of them were in education. Almost everyone was in education. So it sounds like your role models were mainly family. Exactly. And then obviously in life, as you look, sure you see, you know, the great jurists that we have. But I think in terms of my dedication and commitment to public service really started with them, watching them. You know, it's something you see, you know, this time we didn't have beepers and all. You know, when that phone rang for my father to be on call, the whole house got up. It was one of those big black phones ringing, you know, which is, is antiquated now. But when he got up, you know, and he was old school, so he was going to the emergency room, so he still got up and put a suit on, and my mother would make sure she, she would run down, make sure he had a little meal before he left. So anything they did, it was we all were in, involved in it. In some way, we were just watching it happen, you know. That's, that's wonderful. Now, uh, how'd you end up at Simmons College in Boston? Interesting enough, you know, when we sat down and talked about schools, my father very much wanted me to go to an all-girls school. He thought that that would be a great ed education experience. So we, we applied to a few of them, and um, my mother and I decided to take a trip. We visited a couple of other uh, all-girls schools. But when I we drove in, on the camp, when we drove to Boston, Mass, I fell in love with it just to see all the schools, all the students, and you know, my 18-year-old mind, I'm like, this is it. And then Simmons was small, and now it's a university, but it was small enough that I still had that support. But then you're on the, you know, you're in the city of Boston, and everyone's a student. So it just, it just seemed like that was it. I knew I wanted to go to Simmons, and it was a great experience. And it was, you know, I'm the, I'm the youngest of my family, so it was far enough from New York, but it was easy to get back to New York. So you could, you know, at that time, take the, you're still this way, take the train or you fly in. It wasn't a, wasn't a big deal. Now you chose to, I guess, follow your, follow in your father's footsteps and to attend uh, Howard University. Um, the oldest and first historically black law school in the country, and the alma mater of Thurgood Marshall, Robert Carter, 
Vernon Jordan, and our very own Franklin H. Williams. Why Howard? Well, first is a legacy. My father attended medical school there. His brothers attended medical school there. My brothers went there. So I was very familiar and had cousins who went to the, the graduate schools. So, but the, what was really, I think, sealed the deal when my, um, my oldest brother was graduating from medical school and went down for the graduation. And, you know, I was primarily raised in the East, the Northeast. So um, I, that was my first experience going onto campus that was multicultural, multi-diverse, and it was just so empowering. And to walk onto the football field and see that I just said, this is true, this educational power for me, I felt was the, this is, this is where it is. As, as Nina Simone would say, that's where it's at. And so that really, for me, it gave me the passion to want to go to a historically black college. Now, I know you're a commissioner with the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Institute, and I mentioned Franklin Williams a moment ago, and I'm sure you've seen the Emmy-nominated documentary on Franklin Williams. There's one scene in there where an observer noted that at Lincoln, Franklin, quote, didn't have to be black. He could just be Franklin, close quote. Was that your sentiment there many, many years later? Absolutely. You know, when we think about it, and, and, and many of us uh, that my colleagues and that I went to law school, we talked about that because many of us, on the good part, we had the fortune of being, you know, set, integrating schools and, you know, being that generation. But sometimes it was nice to have someone who had the same experiences that you had that, you know, not that there aren't issues of race, but just for that not to be, you know, when you're a person, an African-American, you always wonder, is this person seeing me for me? Are they seeing? But that wasn't the issue. And so it was just, it was comfortable. It doesn't mean I didn't have challenges. It doesn't mean that law school didn't challenge me. But it was, it was nice to be among, amongst peers who had faced the same struggles that you faced even though you may have come from a family that did a lot better than previous generations you still have struggles and to be able to have that affirmation and confirmation was huge i imagine it was now from the start as both a practicing attorney and a judge you gravitated to cases involving children and families perhaps with some influence from your mother and sure. uh, you serve on the permanent judicial commission uh, on justice for children um, i'm starting to, to detect a pattern here judge Yes, absolutely. I, I do have a passion for families and children. Um, I can remember. I was so happy I, when I became part of the commission. Uh, was under when Judge Kate first started. You know, that was a big passion for her. And I really feel that some of the ills and problems that we're facing in our society starts with our families, and we can, can begin to work and heal with our families. It makes a difference. And I also think myself being in that kind of work and doing that kind of work also helps inspire other other generations and uh, so it's 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 my pattern it's my passion <laughs> and where, where would you be today if you did not have the family influences that you had oh um i don't know i think that is critical to my um to who i am today i think it's even you know even as i talk about the fact that um going to historic black college gave me the opportunity to be me but also the fact that I did go to integrated schools. Um, there's a book called Children of the Dream, and my generation were the first generation that benefited from, the, from integration. And it shows that we really, we really, we actually do much better than those who do not. And so the background of having both worlds has meant so much. So part of it, and I'll say this when I first started 
when I first ran, and, and obviously at the time, it wasn't as easy outside of the city to, to uh, elect someone who looked like me. And many people said, oh, you know, it's going to be hard for you to get people to vote for you who are not people of color. And by going to integrated schools, I was like, that's absolutely not true. Because I've made friends and I know that there are people who are not people of color, not black people, who are not, who look at Kathy for Kathy. So that experience of these two worlds helped me realize, and that doesn't mean everyone's going to love me. My mother used to say, remember, everyone's not going to love you, Kathy. But it, I know there are people of good heart and goodwill who see Kathy for Kathy. That's a, how beautifully put. Now let's turn to the JI, the Judicial Institute. Uh, first, uh, what is it? Where is it? And why is it? Sure. So, good question. You know, we're coming up on our 20 years in May 2023. As you know, this was a brainchild of Judge K. And the Judicial Institute sits on the campus of Pace Law School in White Plains, New York. Um, and obviously, there was always been educational training for judges. But it was a vision of Judge K to really think about we should have a building dedicated specifically for judicial education. And that was the brainchild 20 years ago for the Judicial Institute. Not only would we do the nuts and bolts of judicial training, but also to be a think tank and to really start thinking, what are these nuances? And you know, some of the issues they thought, say we thought about 20 years ago, what happens if there's a shutdown of the court system? What would the court do? So the Judicial Institute is, I think has several different roles as I'm learning, I've just made a year and that would be nuts and bolts, but also begin to look at different aspects of the law and how, what judges need to do their work every single day. Now you took over as Dean a couple of years ago with wonderful timing in the middle of a pandemic. Um, why did this position appeal to you um, after all that you had done? Or maybe, maybe, the, maybe think, the question answers itself, but I'll let you do it. Right. I think over, so I've just made a year. I think what appealed to me from my years of being a supervising judge and an administrative judge, a lot of the, so you get to read, especially in family court, tons and tons of complaints from litigants. And a lot of the issues that they would raise would be issues really about the perception of the judge, how the judge um, handled their cases. Sometimes I would listen and, and I really, not knowing that many years later I'd be a judicial institute, I said, this is a training issue. And sometimes the training for me would be, and in family court, everything is on a, is, is audio, you know, it's, it's recorded. And so I asked a judge, why don't you listen to how you handled this case? And so out of that, over those many years, I realized that maybe we should have training focused in a way that judges not only are armed with the law, because you, you need to be armed with the law, but also to understand who is that person sitting before you? What are the issues of that? It's, it's, they're not before you, they're before you for one reason, but there's so many other issues too. And so it's a great opportunity to begin to educate judges and also some education for those who come before the court in terms of what we do, how we do, what we can do and not do. And as you know, the judiciary is very much in the press now. So I think it's a good time for a little bit of education on both sides. I'm sure. Now, you have the mandatory training for new judges in, I don't know if it's December or January, and then you have your summer programs. What goes on the rest of the year? Oh, a lot, a lot. So we are now uh, developing quite a few mini courses. So we'll start focusing and targeting on certain things. For instance, we are working on a trial preparation series, which we just kicked off yesterday. And it's really 
to help show judges from soup to nuts what happens at the pretrial conference, what happens, and actually allow it to be something that would be in-person, actual simulations, and also bringing in law students, and even we've had some interest from medical students to actually see what happens in the courtroom. So what we're doing on the other part of the time is to start laser focusing on various issues. We are working on having um, a program actually with um, the United Nations. We've done some work with the United Nations. We actually have a couple of judges. It's not officially yet. We're confirming the date. But as you know, the, our New York State Constitution was amended to really affect that each person is entitled to a, a clean air and water. So many other countries have actually already had this law in place. So we're having three or four top judges who are going to speak at the UN, come to the JI, and talk about how what kind of cases judges will see. So we're trying to also develop the think tank aspect of um, of educational learning. We're looking to have a some a program called a View from the Well, and a View from the Well will educate judges in terms of what does the, when a person comes in for the first time in criminal court, many times, what's going on? This person is. So we're looking to do very targeted, laser-focused programs on the nuances. Obviously, bail reform is a big issue, but there's more to that legislation than just bail reform. So we're beginning to start teasing away some of the other issues that are important, not only to, to uh, judges, but overall the impression of judges. What's your long-range vision for the JI? Where, where, where would you like it in a year or five years further down the road? Sure. Well, my long-range vision obviously would be to continue to do what we do well and, um, and that. But I want it to be a place where a judge says, oh, my goodness, my AJ or my supervising judge just said, I've got to move out of my criminal court and go to the matrimonial part. They can come right to the to our in which we're developing. They'll be able to come right to the JI, look at the JI library, and know, as I say, from soup to nuts, how to handle a matrimony, which we're doing a lot of this. But in addition, also taking on on the big issues like how 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 are the how are we going to look at the judiciary 20 years from now, another 20 years? So I want us to also be on the cutting edge that judges can come and really see. This, where's technology going? What if we do have a hybrid? I'm using these examples. But also I want to have a place where judges, hey, this new decision came out. Let's have a roundtable and judges to sort of just talk about it. So when you're thinking about premier education, judicial education, you think that the Judicial Institute pops into your head right away. And not just on updates. It's an interesting thing, and I wrote an op-ed piece, and I'll send it to you. That's the biggest desire of judges. An up updates we have them but now in this time judges have to be aware of every decision that is being scrutinized so i want them to be prepared for that not only in the sense of having the law before them but also how does it affect you in addition how does it affect your well-being so i want to i don't want to compartmentalize the life of a judge i want to take the life of a judge from all aspects how do you deal when you have a media uh, a media issue and and also, what does that do to you internally? That's very effective. So my vision is to continue what we're doing well, but lift it up and lift it out. So I think in a nutshell, what you're saying is that the JI is cutting edge and must always be cutting edge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Judge, thanks so much for your insight and your, and your time and for all, all that you've done for the people of the state of New York. Thank you.